You're listening to KMUZ, Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule, see how to stream our programs live, and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to The Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of a luncheon presentation for the Salem City Club by two military veterans who served in Afghanistan. Nobody thought during the events of 9-11 two decades ago that one of the many results of that turbulent time would include U.S. troops spending the next 20 years policing Afghanistan, which had a connection to the attackers who had brought down the World Trade Towers in New York. Now the U.S. troops have mostly left that still-troubled country. Two of them came to tell about it. Program lead Ed Millis introduced the speakers. Good afternoon, Salem City Club members and guests. Welcome to our program today, which is Afghanistan through the eyes of those who served. Salem City Club is pleased to have Colonel Retired Kevin Dial and Sergeant Major Retired Jerry Glessman to present their observations and experiences during separate one-year tours in Afghanistan. Both are well decorated for their military service to our country. I encourage you to read the Salem City Club email for this program, which provides only a snapshot of their impressive resumes. Hopefully Kevin and Jerry will forgive me for not reciting their many accomplishments, both in the National Guard and in our Salem community. The reasons for my brevity are twofold. To give them the most program time for their Afghanistan presentation and to express my appreciation for giving their valuable time to personally meet with me during the planning stages of the program and candidly share a portion of their stories. Yes, they were both warriors in Afghanistan with a military mission, but that comes, but what comes through loud and clear in their stories is a compassion and deep commitment to improving the lives of the Afghan people. The contributions they made to the local people and their villages may never be fully known, but will be materially and emotionally lasting. It is my pleasure to introduce Colonel Retired Kevin Dial and Sergeant Major Retired Jerry Glessman, who will present their stories from Afghanistan. Kevin, welcome, and please lead off. Thank you very much, Ed. Salem City Club members and guests, thank you for this time to uh, talk a little bit about my year in Afghanistan, and we were in Eastern Afghanistan in 2011. Um, before we get started, I wanted to kind of start with the first slide here, which is National Guard 101. Um, most people know they see a National Guard soldier and they see U.S. Army or they see U.S. Air Force on the uniform, but they don't exactly know what that means. And they think we're the same as everybody else that's in that same uniform. Well, actually, the National Guard is a construct of our founding fathers. And uh, it actually, our birthday is coming up here on December 13th. And it goes all the way back to 1636, where the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, formed a militia. And again, a defense of our uh, rights and our ways of life, uh, the Puritans decided that they needed some defense. And so we actually predate the United States by about 140 years, and we'll be celebrating our 385th birthday this year. The National Guard is set up in all of the 50 states, the District of Columbia, and our three territories, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Uh, there's about 450,000 Guards members, both of the Army and the Air National Guard, serving around the United States. Uh, in the state of Oregon, you'll see about 6,000 Army National Guardsmen in different units. Uh, we have units that spread all the way from infantry to armor units, support units, um, all the way down to water purification and intel and communications. On the Air National Guard, they have two different missions. Uh, one is a training mission down in Klamath Falls. The other, they have an air interdiction mission, and that'll be very important as I talk about our different missions in the National Guard. National Guard is actually set up under what's called Title 32. And we, as guardsmen, 
and women work for the governor of the state of Oregon. Um, each individual state and territory has their own National Guard. And it was set up by the Founding Fathers because they saw that a large standing army and a centrally controlled government worked kind of like the king and they didn't like that. And they wanted to make sure states had rights. And so to do that, again, you have to have an equal and measured response. And so they gave a military component to each one of the states. Uh, the United States Service Code, Title 32, employs and keeps guardsmen on duty at each of the states. Title 10 would be the active duty code. And as we talk about how the states could use soldiers and airmen, they can be used in disaster relief, military support. This is the part where the military support can actually be requested by the federal government. And guard soldiers in a Title 32 status can be switched over to an active status, deployed in Title 10, and then brought back and put back under the National Guard. Again, that's with a conjoined agreement, both of the governors and of the federal forces and the president. Uh, you'll see that during 9-11, uh, because the Oregon National Guard, Air National Guard, was the first in the air doing the air interdiction mission. That's one of their missions that fell under that dual support of guard and uh, nation building. Our other missions are law enforcement, election support, um, and you see us at 9-11, and you also see us at the Capitol during each of the election times. You'll see also during cyber warfare, we have a mission, secondary mission. They have a large cyber force in the National Guard and civil military operations. Uh, when governors call up soldiers to do hospital missions, fires, floods, or they put them on the border, uh, that's one of our others. Uh, one of the big conflicts that you'll see between the Guard and the active forces is when we're called up into a federal status, um, we're a part-time soldier and a full-time citizen. Uh, flipping that causes a lot of problems at the state level and the employer level. A lot of work has been done. Our employer support of the Guard and Reserve has a great measured uh, response, and we work with employers to make sure that we uh, minimally impact our, our great supporters in the civilian world. Um, as I got ready for a deployment, we actually got our, uh, this is the roll into how the engineers from the state of Oregon got deployed. Uh, we had a notification of sourcing in December of 2009. That comes from the active duty and federal government, Department of Defense. And they called the governor, worked with them, and they actually start our mobilization process. Um, when we got notified, we were told we were going to be a construction task force. And as part of a construction task force, Oregon doesn't have all the pieces. And so we're kind of a plug and play asset. And they grabbed down to Oregon and they said, we want your commanded control elements, which was a headquarters and a repair HHC and a maintenance company. And then they picked up units from across the United States. I'm going to pick up two horizontal units. One of those is going to be from Georgia and one of them is going to be from California. I'm going to then pick up two vertical units. Uh, one of those are going to be from Michigan and one of them are going to be from Nebraska and then a survey and design team out of Mississippi. So if anybody's ever played basketball, that's like putting together a team and you're pulling it from five different communities and you're each going to train individually for about a year. And then they're going to throw you into a game at the end of that year. and You're going to do the mission together. Um, I got to see my units uh, at least once before we mobilized. Uh, we all didn't mobilize together. Some of the units went before me. Some of them went from a different platform. Uh, Nebraska, they actually were in theater a month before I got there doing the mission, which, of course, they means they leave a month before I get there. So. My unit from Oregon National Guard, 175 soldiers, we get mobilized and we get sent to Fort uh, McCoy, Wisconsin. Um, there were multiple sub-zero days as we were training, and that was probably good training because we were headed to a base in eastern Afghanistan at 7,000 feet. My next slide will be kind of an orientation of our theater of operations and how we were uh, laid out. But uh, just to know, uh, Wisconsin is not very high, but it is very cold. Afghanistan is very, very high, but it wasn't as cold as Wisconsin. We were actually glad to get to Afghanistan. Uh, we deployed and they have a thing called a relief in place. It's called a RIP mission. And when we got there, we were replacing the West Virginia National Guard as their headquarters. And they had, again, units from uh, different states set down in this construction mission in eastern Afghanistan. We had nine provinces that I'll show you on the next slide that we were in support of as we were taking this mission. 
Uh, during the handover, you get about two weeks on the ground with the replacing unit. So West Virginia, uh, their commander and I had been talking by email for months. Uh, we knew who we were going to replace. He had sent me pictures of the place, uh, operational um, kind of data that I needed to know what terrain we're going to be operating in and key data that was not secure that we could actually look and share with our soldiers. We also had a couple of different, there are um, encrypted networks where we could sit down and talk and that happened about twice. So I had quite a bit of communications with the guy that I was going in behind. Um, the military calls this kind of mission groundhog day. It seems like the same thing day after day after day. And uh, it wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. And for the soldiers, again, they're coming from a civilian background. I get a wide spectrum of construction people. I've got people that are city engineers. I've got pastors. I've got newspaper people. I've got um, clerks at the local store. And we're going into this mission, which is a, a, a mix of boredom and adrenaline. Um, the day-to-day -day monotony of washing your uniforms and taking care of your, your place and then getting suited up, rolling it out of a gate and going into the most dangerous environment you could have imagined and then coming back, trying to turn it back off, get some sleep before you go back out again. Um, during the middle of this, there's a little red dot on this slide that says change of mission. Um, about four months in, we initially came in under a brigade, which is the next element up from my task force, and they were out of Texas. Um, somebody in the higher than them headquarters decided it would be a good idea that um, we had a smaller area of operations. And what that meant, and this slide shows it, I went from my nine regions and the red ones I actually lost. They fell off of my list. And I went down to just these five provinces and they're in the southeast corner there of Afghanistan. Um, what that meant during that is that I have a smaller area of operations, but now I also have a route clearance mission. I give away two of my units, one of my horizontal construction and one of my vertical construction missions, and I give them to a route clearance task force. Before this point, they had been covering the same nine provinces that I was in, but they were in a whole different mission set, and they were very good at it. That's what they had trained for. So now they're trying to figure out construction, and in a northern area, and I'm trying to figure out route clearance in the Southern area. I uh, worked with that commander. Uh, he was off active duty and we got a lot of good lay down of what was going on and how that happened. And um, we picked up the mission and, and went through with it. Uh, Army in true Army fashion, uh, be prepared for uh, something different was definitely the order of the day there. Uh, then we come up to the rip out. So same with when we came in, we knew what unit was going to replace us. It was a task force out of California. And again, they had units that were laid out from across the United States that were falling under them. Uh, we saw their replacement horizontal unit come in to replace my Nebraska unit about a month before they got there. Uh, we handed it to them and they, again, lots of communication from the front to the back. Um, they returned home, or we returned home and demobilized, but we actually had to go to uh, New Jersey, and we spent about a month in New Jersey as we reacclimatized, uh, de-stressed, got the rest of our shots, and then we came back to home station. Um, these are the provinces, and you'll see the ones that were in the north. Those are actually in some of the most rugged terrain, and if anybody's seen the movie Restrepo, that's the Korangal Valley. There's also the Pesh Valley up there. Uh, those four provinces in the north were probably the most dangerous in all of Afghanistan. And uh, today, if you see any of the news and you see people that are uh, resisting the Taliban, that is in that province as well. That's where the Northern Alliance has kind of set up their shop. It's very hard to get in and out of. And uh, forces that are against any kind of government will definitely hold up there. <laughs> Um, the so what and was it worth the price? Those are kind of the questions when uh, Ed and I talked about this. And I said, you know, when we were there, our mission initially was to build. But we also cleared thousands of miles for both coalition forces and for the civilians that were living there. Um, as the Taliban wanted to interdict the flow of uh, both food and supplies to destabilize the government, um, our soldiers were there on the ground clearing out those devices and make sure it was safe. 
But we also, for our soldiers, constructed mess halls, munition storages, just anything that could be used in support of a coalition force, we did it. We also did it with the British, with the Poles, uh, the Polish forces that were there, uh, the just anybody that was on the ground uh, you work with and you get used to that kind of cross-organizational structure. We were also assigned an Afghan National Army unit while we were there to train in our route clearance mission and in our headquarters or support mission. And during that time, we also went out with them and constructed their bases, their outposts, outposts and their checkpoints, again, trying to build the infrastructure on that southeast border uh, to interdict and stop the Taliban from coming across the border. One of the things I'm most proud of is actually our civil military operations mission. Uh, when we got there, we realized very quickly the forces before us had started at one project and they were building a uh, orphanage for the local community. Uh, and we kind of picked that up in the middle of their mission. And they, again, that was one of the things that they reflected to us that it was very important to the local leaders. So we went ahead and completed that. Um, in the middle of that, I actually was able to slice out soldiers from my headquarters command team. I had one female soldier that started a female engagement team so that she could actually go out and talk to uh, the female citizens in our area. Uh, there are no females in their military, and you can only get inside of a home if you are female to talk to the women. And so what that allowed us to do is we set up some different things in this civil military operations project. We were able to procure chickens and, and give those as they are able to then grow their own food in the, the chickens. Uh, we got some sewing machines that they could then give out and give training so that they can start home businesses and they can keep that going. Again, trying to provide stability within the local communities. We also had a professional engineer from the city of Salem, and I want to put a big shout out to uh, Chaplain Rick Barnes. And yes, I said Chaplain. Uh, he serves the city of Salem as their engineer, but he is also a chaplain in the Oregon Army National Guard. And on my deployment, uh, we actually had him out in the field. Now, again, he is a chaplain, so he didn't have a weapon, but we provided a lot of security to make sure he was safe. As he surveyed projects that we did across our theater, um, we were able to build two catchment dams for water. Afghanistan is a very arid region. We were in high elevations and, and not a lot of rainfall. And their growing season was pretty short, about three months. Um, by building a dam and uh, allowing some kind of catchment for the water and building in some infrastructure so they could pipe that out into their fields, uh, we extended their growing season by two to three months. That doubles their ability to produce food and produce funds that can come back into the communities. Very proud of that initiative. Um, we also were able to build a technical school. Uh, there was a building in our area that was outside of our headquarters and outside of our base. And we were able to work with the local uh, Afghan government and they allowed us to have that building. Uh, we rebuilt it. It had been kind of run down uh, inside of it. We put a generator, we drilled two wells for them. And uh, we put in a technical school that then taught carpentry, masonry, electrical, computer, well drilling, beekeeping, welding, vet medicine, horticulture. And when I say the so what and was it worth the price, every soldier that was there knows that we trained individual Afghans to go back to their remote villages and make a difference. They took these skills. These skills are, they're not something that can be destroyed by a bomb or a fire. Uh, they reside in the people and in the minds of our Afghans. Um, I also know that because of our engagement on the one-to-one -one level, uh, we did many key leader engagements. Uh, one of the stories that my guys uh, disliked a lot, but I like to tell is when we got invited to an Afghan party. Um, it was incredibly different because it was all men. Uh, we brought one of our chief warrant officers and she was in our in engineering construction section. And uh, she was veiled and she sat there with her, her body armor as she watched all the guys in the room dance. And uh, uh, truly was an experience that I will never forget and many of my soldiers will never forget as well. But that kind of engagement on the one-to-one -one level, uh, when you put down your weapons and you take off your body armor, uh, that put a, a face of America that I know made a difference to not just my soldiers, but to the local Afghan leaders. So our deployment was a year long. We came back to family, friends. Uh, 
we had one casualty from our deployment from combat operations. And again, Sergeant uh, Jonathan Lyons out of New Jersey will be in my heart and mind forever, as well as my soldiers. And uh, we still made a difference. And was it worth the price? I think it was worth the price. And again, soldiers and airmen uh, serve our nation on the front lines. And uh, the National Guard is a very valuable part of that. Um, my contact information, again, I'm going to be transferring over here, but uh, this is where I can be reached. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A at the end, but if you want to get a hold of me, uh, please take a screenshot of this and uh, I can be reached at that email. And with that, I'm going to unscreen share my screen and I'm going to say I'm going to be followed by uh, Sergeant Major Jerry Glessman. And uh, he was in an ETT team in Kandahar province. Uh, currently, he serves with uh, Berkshire Hathaway as a top salesman for the state of Oregon. So many of the skills that he learned as a soldier have been applied here in his civilian world. But I also know that the deployment he had was uh, much, much different than the one I had. Uh, Jerry, thank you again for your time, and it's all yours. All right. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. And good afternoon, everybody. Um, I wanted to say thank you to the Salem Club for inviting us to speak today. And uh, I'm just going to kick it right off here and get right into it. Um, my, my name is uh, Sergeant Major Retired Jerry Glussman. My team of 17 spent 14 months on this term. It included 30 days of home station training and 45 days with the 1st Infantry Division at Fort Riley, Kansas. Our home station training consisted of advanced marksmanship, combat lifesaver uh, certification, which battlefield medical training, anti-terrorism level one, and a lot of paperwork. We arrived at Fort Riley, Kansas in the first part of January 2008 for the combat advisor course. I don't know if uh, you've been to Kansas in the dead of winter time, but it's not the warmest place to be. Uh, despite the cold, most of our training uh, was going to be conducted outside. Uh, we worked with uh, local Afghan civilians in our training scenarios in order for them to be more realistic. These are Afghan civilians that were brought over um, previously and the 1st Infantry Division hired them to uh, work through realistic uh, training scenarios with us. Um, as well as uh, team training, we had individual tasks uh, that had to be accomplished. Each member of the team qualified on all weapon systems up to the Mark 19 uh, 40 millimeter grenade launcher and M2 50 cal machine gun. In addition to weapons qualification, we had advanced medical, communication, anti-terrorism, counter-insurgency training. Um, we also did some basic language and cultural training. Uh, we left Fort Riley in March uh, and headed for Kabul, Afghanistan. Afghanistan has four major uh, main ethnic groups, uh, Pasto, uh, or Pashtun. Uh, 42%, Tajiks, 27%, uh, Hazaras, 9%, and Ubeks, uh, 9%. Uh, there's 11% of other uh, ethnic groups as well. Uh, the population in 2021 uh, was around 31.4 million people. The main two languages uh, were uh, Pasto and Dari Persian. Kabul is the capital of the, and home to 4.6 uh, million people. Uh, the population, 23.9% of the population lived in the urban areas, 71.4% lived in the rural areas, and 4.7% are nomadics. Kabul sits in a bowl surrounded by the majestic Kohi Mountains. All right, on slide six, uh, my team's mission changed uh, on our flight from the U.S. Uh, to Afghanistan. Initially, we were to train Afghan National Police, or AMP. Instead, uh, we were handed the Counter Narcotics Infantry Kandak or Battalion of Afghan National uh, Army Unit. The mission was split between the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior to fund. Our first test was to get our Afghans the vehicles, weapons, and equipment to do this mission. It proved more complicated than what we had thought. We began our training without weapons and gear. It would take uh, us many discussions, meetings, and over a month of time with both ministries to put together the package we needed for our Afghan unit. Slide. 
Meanwhile, we used what we had available to train our Afghans on several battle drills, team, and individual movements uh, techniques. We performed these drills at night as well as daytime. Once we received our vehicles, we realized that most of our Afghans had never driven a vehicle before. So our team quickly and nervously came up with a driver's training plan. Imagine 60 plus teenagers excited to learn how to drive. All right, to complicate things, our vehicles were stick shifts, not automatics. After two weeks of heart-stopping fun, we had our drivers. Shortly after we had our drivers trained, it was time to convoy to our base in Helmand province. Needless to say, we stayed in the back of the convoy with our vehicle. After a long day of travel, we arrived at Forward Operating Base Tombstone. It was the furthest south U.S. base in Helmand, which was the British-held area of operations. The U.S. Marines would come in the following year in 2009. Now in Helmand, with our Afghans and their assets, we went to work on individual skills, but focused heavily on weapons, qualifications, and safety training. This was an area I was very experienced in, Soviet area weapons, AKs, RPKs, PKMs, etc. Another soldier, Master Sergeant Jacola, and I set up uh, and ran all ranges. Uh, the rest of the team assisted and ran their companies through ensuring all soldiers were qualified on assigned weapons. After a week of ranges, we had qualified our entire CANDAC of 600 plus Afghan soldiers. In addition to weapons, uh, I was given the task to train our heaven weapon, heavy weapons soldiers. We received in our weapons package several 1954 era Soviet B-10 recoilless rifles. The B-10 is a breech-loaded, smoothbore, 82-millimeter weapon system. This weapon is normally mounted on an armored vehicle or fired from a tripod. The only option we had were a bunch of rusted shut tripods, and the Soviets stopped using this weapon in 1960. Our team also had to stay proficient in our medical training. So once a month or so, we would take turns sticking each other. This gave us practical application on administering an IV. Little did we know this would be vital to our team later on in our tour. We in turn did, in turn did some Soviet-era weapons training to familiarize the team and these weapons in case we needed to use them as a substitute to our personal weapons. Real quick, we're going to talk about weather, uh, a little bit about the weather in Afghanistan or southern Afghanistan. Uh, weather in Afghanistan can be hazardous. The weather does become extreme, and it is important that we understood the conditions to prevent loss of life. Sandstorms were a common occurrence in, southern, uh, in the southern region, and they can be blinding as well as hard to navigate through. This is a convoy of this in, uh, in a sandstorm. This is a bunker, uh, one of our bunkers. Uh, and the next slide is going to slow, show you the difference between um, a sandstorm and a clear uh, day, normal day. Sandstorms were not the only weather conditions we had to battle. Uh, the more extreme one was the heat and carrying on an extra 80 to 100 pounds on a four to eight hour foot patrol. These conditions could have proven deadly, so hydration was a continuous effort for every team member. Other battlefield distractors were uh, the Afghan National Police. First, we had to ensure they were actually AMP and not the Taliban or foreign fighters in disguise. Uh, I briefly talked about the nomadic um, people. Um, nomadic people of Afghanistan were also a caution to us, and occasionally we would search these caravans for weapons and they did carry weapons in these caravans. We left Fob Tombstone for a month-long stint in the Helmand River uh, Valley with the Irish and Dane units. This was known as the Green Zone in Afghanistan, but unlike the Green Zone in Iraq, this was not a safe place. The conditions on these six different fire bases were primitive. And you can see the shower there and, and um, our cleanup area. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. 
Centuries of conflict make up the history of the country of Afghanistan. And after the attacks of 9-11, American troops went there to track down terrorists. They trained local allies to translate for them, to help keep the peace, and made connections between the people of Afghanistan and the Americans who'd come on a mission that didn't have any end date. They made friends even as attacks raged around them. Two of those soldiers who came home were at the Salem City Club's lunch hour online gathering to tell of their observations and experiences. It's not a political analysis, but a first-hand look at people and events in Afghanistan before this year. Wood runs uh, were a supply issue that were needed in order for our Afghans to cook their meals. And here's a bunch of wood over there in the background. There's a famous army saying, three hots and a cot. Well, I've received a cot, but as far as the three hot mills, that was replaced with one hot mill and two MREs a day. And this is my, my actual um, hooch um, there in uh, the Helmand River province, or valley, excuse me. We spent four months on foot patrols as poppy fields were done and were replaced by cornfields. The Irish and Danes would patrol with us in our Afghans, but their uh, row or rules of engagement were much more strict than ours. So they joked with us that they couldn't fire until the Yanks started to fire. This is my personal identification beacon in our get out of jail card, uh, as we called it, in case we were lost or left behind during a mission. These were assigned to each uh, member of our team so that the U.S. Army South knew if they received one of these numbers, uh, the four corners have numbers on them, uh, who it was. The beacon would be activated by the individual to give out a location, and luckily we didn't need to use these. Another obstacle that we ran into during our patrols were some of the 6,700 canals uh, in Afghanistan. Some were easily crossed, others were not. On one occasion, uh, our Afghans were kind enough to build a stick bridge across the canal that was about 12 feet wide. As I watched the 130-pound Afghans cross, I realized that the stick bridge would not hold me and my gear. I considered my options and chose to enter the water on my terms. All was great until I reached the other side. As I stood in the chest-deep water, I realized the bank was much taller and steeper. Long story short, it took four of our Afghan soldiers to pull me up onto the other bank. Still better than walking that stick bridge. If you look past my ugly mug, you can see in this photo where the farmland ends and the desert begins. These canals are uh, the lifeline for the 71.4% of the population that live in the rural areas. You literally can put one foot in the desert and one foot in a cornfield. This is where the water stops. We had several small villages in the Hellman River Valley, and they were always a concern for us as we did not uh, did our foot patrols. We were told that after we would uh, come through, the Taliban would come through, so we truly did not know which side they would be on on that day. Slide. Occasionally, we would get a platoon of Dane soldiers to join us on our patrols, but usually it was two U.S. soldiers, three to four Irish, and about 15 Afghan soldiers. We appreciated the extra firepower when the Danes joined us. Slide. Small paths or roads were spread out in the Helmand River Valley. However, we rarely traveled on them as they were great places for ambushes and IED. Our main missions were to connect with the local village elders and work with them to win the hearts and minds of the local population. However, we would conduct searches if we were fired on from any villages. We would find small weapons, cash, and IND making materials on the left-hand side there. And of course, marijuana was being grown throughout Southern Afghanistan. Uh, we left it be as this was not a battle we wanted to fight. After patrols, we would have local elders over for dinner or lunch once a week, once or twice a week. A tasty chicken and rice and bread meal with a real treat from our MREs. Entertainment uh, was in short supply, but the Afghans love music and dancing. So if you don't have a guitar, you make one. Every once in a while, U.S. Army South would call us uh, for other missions. One that stands out was a mission that Sergeant First Class Walker and I were called to do. It was to fly with the commander and CSM of South, Army South, 
and separate Russian MI-17 helicopters to resupply ammo and fresh AMP to an embattled AMP station. It was about 50K from Kandahar Airfield is where we were going. The AMP had nine wounded AMP and family members at the station as well. We agreed to resupply and medevac their wounded. The Afghans uh, piloting the Russian helicopters did a fantastic job flying, and we accomplished our mission without any major issues. After arriving back to the airfield, I noticed a young boy about 10 or 11 wearing an AMP shirt. I asked my interpreter to get his reason for wearing it. The response surprised me. It turned out that his dad was one of the wounded AMPs, and the young boy had to take his dad's uniform and AK to help defend the AMP station. He was fighting for his family and freedom. Our friends, the Danes, also had missions that we would accompany them on uh, during our time in Hellman, and uh, they brought the big, big toys with them. All right, this is an RG-31 MRAP vehicle, and these armored vehicles were our team's second set of vehicles we received. They were much more protected than the up-armored Humvees that we started with. Unfortunately, the Taliban learned how to make larger and more destructive IEDs. This is an RG-31 MRAP vehicle after a large IED hit it. My team lost a great soldier, Captain Bruno Di Salini, and a brother on September 20th, 2008, along with two of our Afghan interpreters. The other two team members survived the blast. Both of those soldiers were medevaced out of country and they, were, they are doing well to this day. Really struggled uh, with showing these pictures uh, with you today, but I chose to do it so that you can see the dangers were real and our men and women in uniform are willing to take these on every day. In the end, our team was hit with three major IEDs and several close calls. We were also involved in several firefights during our tour. Needless to say, after this tour, I can make light of it and say I truly needed a beer. Thank you again uh, for letting us join you and speak with you today. My contact information is below if you have further questions. I'm now turning it back over to Cindy and Ed for q and I'm going to start uh, the first, uh, the questions off. And this one is from Ed Millis. What barriers to improvements for the Afghan people did you face because of cultural differences? And if both of you would just take a shot at that, that'd be great. This is Kevin. I'll take a first stat. Um, our interpreters did a phenomenal job and the challenge was some of them weren't from our region and so they'd speak a different dialect and they may have a cultural difference. Uh, education was a very big one. Uh, very few of the people actually wrote um, unless you were in a government position and a large segment of haves and have-nots in our cult in that culture and so you also had some cultural differences how they dealt with their individual soldiers and stuff so um, yeah, their discipline would actually be physical sometimes. You could actually see an Afghan leader maybe not so nice to one of their soldiers if there was a, a deviation from a standard. And American soldiers had a problem with that occasionally. And again, uh, we, we would not go past a moral boundary. If there was something where somebody was in danger, we would step in. But, you know, um, if, if, a, if an Afghan commander uh, hit their soldier with his hand, we, we let that go. But anything past that, we would have to step in. That was probably our toughest one. Jerry, do you have anything to add? And I would just add, uh, you know, the trust factor. We really had to trust our interpreters over there. And um, none of us really spoke any of the language uh, effectively. Uh, we, um, we also added on to our part um, with our uh, CANDEC, we actually started teaching them English because uh, a lot of them didn't know English. So uh, we wanted to try to uh, breach some barriers there. And then we picked up a few phrases ourselves uh, to try to breach that barrier. Okay, thank you. And now Hans West has a question. Yeah, a quick question about, uh, con are you having contact is still at this time with some of the people you uh, encountered or met? Uh, some of the Afghanis, for instance, uh, your interpreters? So I can take that one first. Um, most of my interpreters, I uh, wrote letters and worked with our uh, Department of our, uh, Immigration to get them into the United States. 
Uh, just about three months ago, I had uh, lunch with one of our interpreters that works out of this Bay Area, started his own trucking company, and he comes through this area about once every three months. And so uh, we still communicate by email. He's working on getting his mother and sisters out of Kabul right now. I've also worked with a couple others. Uh, they're mostly down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. There's a large Afghan community there, and uh, four of my other interpreters and their families are there. And then at the fall in August, we had one of our interpreters that had stayed and started a business, and uh, he got out about three days before the um, explosion there at the Kabul airport, but he had worked with the Afghan um team that was doing interpretation for the Marines at the Kabul airport. And then he and his wife and three kids, uh, they are living in Philadelphia now. They have gone through the process and they're back in the States. And uh, I will tell you, those people are true patriots of their country and just saw that there was no way to stay there and make it work. Jerry, anything to add? As far as our interpreters, uh, we did get all our interpreters out as well. And uh, the two, unfortunate, uh, the two that uh, were killed uh, in that IED explosion, uh, we could not get their families out. Um, so we have, you know, lost contact with them, obviously. Uh, but that was the unfortunate thing. Um, but we were able to get everybody else uh, out that worked with us and uh, their close-knit family. Okay, thank you. And now there's a question from Michael Dwayne Brown. The media concentrates on the negative, what went wrong, failures. I'm heartened to learn about positive accomplishments of U.S. military presence for our time in Afghanistan. Mostly, I want to know, and this is a series of questions, and take your pick. Uh, what can we learn from this experience? How can we make this better? How can we improve our foreign policies with regard to whether how to use military presence in foreign nations? How can we avoid Vietnam-like failures? Um, or Afghanistan-like experiences? How can uh, we do better at supporting a, a side that has less corruption? And how can we do better at truthful, accurate reporting from military government about how things are really going? So you don't have to answer all of the, those, but um, Kevin, do you want to start off? Yeah, I'll start that last one, or second from the last, how do you do better by supporting a side that's not corrupt? Jerry will tell you, every side was corrupt. <laughs> so you, the government was, the Taliban was, everybody in between was. If uh, it, Again, there's, yeah, very different kind of culture. Uh, the experience we learned, again, what we learned from this experience is every Afghan citizen wants to keep their family safe, to put food on their table, and to live in the manner that they choose. Um, that's that's a freedom principle that America should support and endorse around the world as countries want to be better and want to go down this road. Um, not, not knowing any of the background of how politics occurred that we got to this. I know there were decisions at national level that put us there. Soldiers do what soldiers are called to do. And that's, again, we stand up and uh, I vote. I love to vote. I think that's a right that we should all uh, take sacredly. And uh, when our vote doesn't matter, then we definitely uh, need to follow Thomas Jefferson's uh, we need to refresh the tree of freedom once in a while, but we need to be voting and we need to be involved in politics. Um, how to use our forces. Uh, we So I will tell you, the National Guard, and this again is why I think the National Guard is the right force at the right time to do these kind of missions, because I actually have soldiers that are 28 to 58. Uh, active duty soldiers, you've got 18 to 24-year-olds that, again, have a very different mindset. They don't see the world the same way at 28 year old that's got a wife and two kids or a 58 year old that's retired and, and he's doing things for his community. And we bring a skill set that's very, very different than the active duty. Uh, we bring an ability to, again, like my chaplain, he is a professional engineer and he had other life skills that would make him a cross mission player. I could put him out at a couple different things and he did a great job. Many of the guard soldiers I brought did that. So we had a different engagement. I think active duty units probably would have had a different engagement. So the problem we had too is we fought a 20 year war one year at a time. Every year was a new lesson learned and we were not always able to pass in a two to three week period, all the lessons learned to the next force. Uh, really the only way to make this happen is to, if you're going to go into a nation, know that you're there for a long time and have forces that can do continuity missions. Jerry? 
Well, boy, those were a lot of questions there. Um, I'm going to really sum it up uh, probably real quick here. Uh, the military, use of the military is generally um, when our politics have failed. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously politics, you know, in a political solution would be the best, best route. Uh, when you call in the military, well, you're going to get a force that's going to go in and, um, you know, uh, do its thing. And uh, again, we tried to win hearts and minds, but uh, again, cultural differences um, is going to be huge in any country that we go into. So politically should be done first. Military should be second. Um, in this case, you know, it was brought to us uh, through 9-11. Um, there really wasn't an option. Um, there needed to be a response, and I think the appropriate response was was done. Um, uh, I mean, we look at World War One, uh, or excuse me, World War Two, and we're still in Italy, we're still in Germany, and we're still in Japan. Um, so, twenty years in one country uh, is just a drop in the bucket. Um, so, I guess words of the wise to our politicians: if we're going to go in militarily we need to be prepared to stay there for a period of time. Okay, thank you for that. And Barbara Curtin-Miles, um, you have the floor if you'd like to, to unmute your microphone. Um, and I, there's also a Q&A a, a text written um, question and I can read that one if you'd prefer. I'll go ahead and read it. Do you have advice for the volunteers who will be helping newly resettled Afghan refugees in Salem? And Jerry, do you want to take that one first? Sure, Cindy. Um, well, one piece of advice, uh, again, is caution. Um, it's a different culture. Um, you haven't experienced the culture. Um, so caution Um you know, these folks were plucked out of Afghanistan, obviously wanted to come out of Afghanistan for the freedom um, that they were seeing uh, for the last 20 years. Um, so just but just a word of caution. Um, there are instances um, we try to screen folks as best we can. But um, as everybody's seen on TV, it was pretty chaotic. Um, so I, I would imagine there there are some not so nice people in, in the bunch. So uh, just a word of caution, uh, but also respect, you know, respects a two way street. Um, you give it, um, you expect it back. Um, so again, uh, use that respect. Um, I think is, is a key factor there. Short answer. Kevin, anything to add? So Men engaging with women in that society is only done inside of a family. So any, and again, we have a different kind of society here, different kind of culture. So men in our society may bring stuff to a house. Um, just be aware. Uh, if you're a man and there's a woman at the door, you need to come back later or find a man in the house to, to talk to. Uh, and until there's a, a, a climatization or they become part of American society and, and that changes a bit. I've actually dealt with a family from Pakistan uh, that moved here about 12 years ago. And um, even now, I, I barely engage with uh, the wife in that relationship just because it's not culturally done. Uh, we don't shake hands. And so uh, just try to learn the lessons from people that have already gone down this road and made the mistake and then don't make the same one yourself. Okay, thank you. And this may be our last question. We might have time for one more, but how many of the interpreters you worked with are still in Afghanistan and trying to leave the country? And that question is from Kathy Patterson. And Jerry, you want to pick that one up? Yeah, so uh, none of our interpreters that uh, we worked with uh, for the uh, about a year that we were there uh, are left in Afghanistan. They are all out. Um, however, uh, we had 600 plus uh, soldiers there. Um, and obviously, we couldn't get every single one of them out. Um, and so, um, yeah. Okay. And Kevin? Um, 
all but one of my interpreters decided to come out. And because they didn't come from the same region, they could go back to a different part of Afghanistan. The one guy that went back up into the northern area, um, he was disassociated from the mission that he did down south. And so he was much safer. Um, and like Jerry said, it's not just the military members, but it's also the people that supported the nation and they may have provided construction materials or they may have uh, provided a service on the base, whether it was laundry or um, uh, whatever. That we, we didn't do this alone and we did it with people in the community. And um, many of those people are at risk and are a target right now. And so um, it doesn't take a lot of proof to uh, punish somebody in that society. So. Anybody that could be said to have supported the Americans or actually did are at risk right now. Okay, and I'm going to take the liberty of the last question to Jerry and just something on, on your slides. All of the, or it looked like um, the eyes of many of the Afghan people were um, blacked out. And is that for, was that for security? That was, um, and I don't know if you uh, you heard, uh, I think there was a couple news stories on it, but uh, most of the military photos that were taken um, were actually removed uh, as much as possible for uh, that could identify an individual person um, from the Afghanistan, uh, uh, I guess, archives if you would, uh, for public viewing. And that was for safety purposes. Again, we couldn't get all our Afghan soldiers out. Um, and, you know, so, um, yeah, it's just a, a caution, safety. Okay, well, again, thank you both so much for being with us today. It's experience that most of us certainly have not had. And um, we, we have certainly seen and heard it on the news, but a personal presentation makes it come to life. So thank you again for being with us today. And certainly thank you for your service on this Veterans Month, really. We're after Veterans Day, but I consider November uh, Veterans Month. So with that, I'll turn it over to Ron Ekas, back president of um, Salem City Club, for closing the meeting. Thanks again. Thank you, Cindy. And thank all of you for attending today's program. And thank you to Jerry Glessman and Kevin Dial for sharing their experiences in Afghanistan. We will continue our programs in January. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details and to register. Thank you. You've been listening to Colonel Kevin Deal and Sergeant Major Jerry Glessman talk about their experiences serving separate one-year tours in Afghanistan. They brought slides and stories for the luncheon gathering of Salem City Club and related some hair-raising tales as well as anecdotes of friendship and lifetime memories while serving in that troubled war zone. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted on the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.